I wrote What Matters in my late 20s because I had two young kids, which are the light of my life, uh, and it's just the greatest inspiration. I wanted to give them a, a roadmap that I didn't have growing up. And so I thought, what better muse than my kids? And so I took all these books that folks like Cornell West or Ralph Potter or other great professors that I was blessed to have had given me, and I, and I just organized the thoughts. And I thought, wow, this is a great little handbook or a little book, as Montaigne said, for the art of conducting a life. Welcome to the Drew Perlman Show. Think of this podcast as the antidote to the fear, the noise, and the talking heads in the news. The show features an entertaining blend of ancient wisdom, empowering ideas, and cutting edge, healthy living science to optimize your health and your life. All right, so let's dive in and get started. Today's guest on the show is Matthew Pippenberg. He is the commercial director at Matterhorn Asset Management and co-founder of SignalsMatter.com. He has extensive experience in alternative investments, law, finance, with a particular expertise in managed futures, credits, and equity investing. He also has years of experience researching, evaluating, and investing in alternative investments from hedge funds and private equity vehicles to real estate. And Matthew is also a published author and regular contributor to the Good Men Project and the author of the Amazon number one new release, Rigged to Fail, which bluntly details the systemic and structural flaws behind central bank distorted capital markets. Matthew, it is an honor to have you. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Drew. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Thanks again. Yeah, this is this is great. Um, you know, Matthew, I just wanted to start with uh, you know getting in, maybe getting into the book a little bit. But it, but it's interesting because you, I noticed that you wrote "Rig to Fail." Um, you know about how the system, the, the financial system, is really collapsing under all of the, the the massive debt and the currency debasement. And I found it interesting because did you write this book prior to the pandemic? <laughs> it's a it's a fair point. And you know, it's interesting. The book came out um on February 19th of 2020 when the markets had just reached their all-time highs. And the title of my book <laughs> is Rigged to Fail, which was written um pretty much throughout 2019, a little bit of 2018. But to your point, the book came out in, in February. The markets were reaching all-time highs, and, and of course, less than a month later in March, markets markets collapsed. And I certainly can't take credit for that at all or <laughs> predicting that. Um, that was obviously a, a COVID-induced kind of um, market correction or massive drawdown. But we can talk about the pandemic and its impact on markets, but it really was not necessarily when I wrote Rig to Fail, it wasn't to try and in, in time a market crash or a market collapse or even a massive correction. It was really just to prepare readers for the, the, the cycles that we've been avoiding and that the cycles that are unavoidable. And it just so happened to, to your point that the book came out the, the very year that markets took a huge hit and then, of course, took a massive recovery due to. Uh, central bank, quote unquote, stimulus, which is just, you know, another word for um, large, large, large amounts of money created out of thin air at the Fed to reliquify or put liquidity back into risk assets, which we could talk about. But there were so many problems pre-COVID with the debt markets and the credit markets. And uh, by that, I mean the bond markets in particular. There were so many problems pre-COVID 
that I wrote later that in, in some ironic way, COVID was one of the best things that ever happened to Wall Street because we had a huge bailout, as everyone probably remembers, whether they're market focused or not, or whether they're amateurs or veterans in, in following stock markets. We kind of all remember the great crisis of 2008 and then the great recovery that followed based on trillions and trillions of printed dollars. It was a very optically hard thing to bail out those two big to fail banks in 2009, 2008. And yet by 2019, they needed another bailout. They needed another pretext for massive amounts of new money into the system. And ironically or conveniently, COVID came in and then the policy reaction to COVID really was another bailout. It was just kind of behind the scenes. There was lots of money that went into Main Street and other care package acts, but unbeknownst to most, Wall Street got another much bigger bailout in 2020 than they did in 2008 and 2009. So there was a big crash in, in March of 2020. Uh, the pandemic, however people think about it, and that's highly debatable, but many things about the pandemic. But one thing I can say from the inside of Wall Street is, is the pandemic created a whole new bailout for the too big to fail banks and the credit system. So in some ways, this massive recovery after March of 2020 couldn't have come at a better time, but it's very easy to explain when you when you add a few trillion dollars or four trillion dollars in a, in a year to the balance sheet of the Fed and put that money, most of it back into the credit market. So it was the best of times and the worst of times in Dickinsonian sense. But yeah, um, uh, the book came out at an interesting time and it's been very interesting ever since, for sure. Yeah. And, um, you know, Matt, I mean, from... <laughs> From watching, you know, if you watch television, if you if you listen to the talking heads or even if you listen to the Fed or, or whoever, I mean, there is a picture portrayed of that the economy is booming. And and like you mentioned, you know, with the stock market, real estate prices. Um, but, you know, as you mentioned in your book and you mentioned there's something going on that's really being ignored in plain sight. And yeah. and, and maybe if you could, you know, give me as well as the listeners, a sense of, you know, where we currently are and really why this, you know, the way we're spending and creating all this debt is really just completely unsustainable. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because, first of all, I think you're right. It, and, I, and I love your podcast and your platform as an alternative news. And alternative news doesn't necessarily mean kooky news or crazy news. It can also just be blunt news. And one of the things I've known for years in the financial markets, uh, whether you know it's the sell side media or the financial media or the mainstream media, they, they truly aren't um, transparent. And, and certainly the pundits and the pablum that passes for financial news, I'll be frank, just isn't transparent. It's almost borderline propaganda in a sense. And this notion that the economy is doing really well by every basic metric, uh, isn't necessarily true. Certainly the risk asset markets have done extremely well since 2009. And comparing this stock market to the economy is not the same thing. And I think they're often confusing the two. Um, you know, empirically and objectively, the middle class in America has been largely forgotten by the policymakers. And I think anyone who's listening to this who isn't in the stock market can probably feel that. Um, you know, since 2009, there has been this massive up and to the right move in, in the markets, just a trend, a bull trend, the likes of which I've never seen, not even since the dot-com bubble or um, prior kind of cycles. 
the idea that that is good for the entire country, uh, for my class of people, for people that run hedge funds or for people that are in the markets, yeah, it's been absolutely artificially fantastic because you know, you're, you're, you're getting a central bank and central bankers, whether it was Yellen or whether it was Bernanke or whether it was Powell today, who have absolutely stimulated is the word or accommodated um, or recovered the stock market and with trillions of dollars of money literally created with a mouse click at the Fed. And, and those trillions of dollars have directly and indirectly gone straight into, into the stock and bond market. And we can get into the details. That's, it, it's not necessary in the details, but it's important to remember that you know 84% of the wealth in the stock market is owned by the top 10% of the US population. So yes, it's been very, very good for a very select minority. Um, it's been very, very bad um, for the rest of the middle class. You know, the country has, and the pundits and the central bankers and even the political leaders, whether they're red or blue or purple, have often confused the, the rising stock market with the rising economy. And if you look at the number of families who require social assistance or relief or entitlements or the number of kids on a food stamp or some type of um, support from the government or the number of families that really can't make ends meet and the number of jobs that have been exported overseas, the, the empirical facts are that the, the, the real economy is struggling. But even with you know declining GDP or gross domestic product and declining manufacturing, yes, there are many, many corp companies that have done extremely well and many shareholders in those companies that have done extremely well. But it's important not to confuse a rising stock market with a rising economy. And without getting into every metric, it's just, in my opinion, simply not happening. And you know what I said in Rig to Fail is, look, if if you're if you're given trillions of dollars indirectly through the central bank, and that money goes, that money is printed out of thin air or created out of thin air at the central bank. Um, really is done to buy U.S. Treasury bonds. And the reason they buy a lot of those Treasury bonds is to keep the the, the yields on those bonds um, low because as the price in bonds goes up, the yields go down. And the reason the yields need to go down is interest rates need to go down. And interest rates are the cost of debt. And the cost of debt for most Americans who have credit cards is 18%. But the cost of debt for folks who run companies on the S&P or the Dow or the NASDAQ is pretty much free. And so they've been able to borrow trillions of dollars to buy back their own shares. Many of these sharehold, these um, CEOs are paid by the price of their shares. So they're, they're drinking their own Kool-Aid. They're using easy money or cheap money or free money to buy back their own stocks, push up their stock prices, pay themselves well. And of course, this, the, the stock market goes up on that type of support. There's so many myriad of ways in which the system is really rigged in favor of Wall Street. And so what you have is almost Wall Street socialism. That is a central bank that bails out banks in 2008, which were otherwise dead on arrival because they were caught with, you know, mortgage-backed securities that were really, you know, toxic waste. And despite the sins of their mortgage-backed security and subprime mortgage bacchanalia, they were bailed out in 2009, 2010. And 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 they were bailed out, and that was really a form of, of direct handout um, from the central banks and from the White House. So that was great for the markets. Uh, unfortunately, Main Street wasn't bailed out. And so 
I think it, it's it's really sad to see the disconnect. We have wealth disparity in this country today um, that has simply never been higher, not even in the roaring 20s or the Gatsby era. It's never been higher in 1783 pre-Napoleonic France or even in 1917 Russia before the czar came down. It's 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 interesting how that's not discussed enough. And yet I think it's felt by many people, unfortunately, in my little circle or in our little bubble of hedge fund guys or, or gold guys talking to other stock investors or other asset classes or other asset class experts, we're in a bubble far removed from, say, Stevensville, Michigan or, you know, Elkhart, Indiana or Idaho or Wyoming, where people really are struggling. And, and, and it's not it's not to be Pollyannish about that. It, it really is true, not only in the U.S., but in Europe, where I am now, there is a massive disconnect between the real economy, how it's felt by the vast majority of people and this in this bitcoin stock market bond market bubble uh real estate too because when when interest rates are three percent for a mortgage or in and inflation is five percent basically mortgages are free but the sad fact is most people can't even afford a down payment to get the mortgage so it's a very select minority of people drew at the bottom line who have benefited from this post 2009 and now post covid bailout um despite direct care package act um, ideas to help or triple P loans to help small businesses, the true beneficiaries of the markets and of central banks really since Greenspan came into, into town, but I'd say in particular since 2009, the, the truth of the matter is the true beneficiaries have been a small, small part of the U.S. population. Hmm. And, and would you say, Matt, I mean, this is I mean, in your book, you you get into historical situations, and but would you say? I mean, this is really, um, I mean, the bubble at some point is going to burst. Well, under normal cycles, it should have burst a long time ago. It should have it should have burst many times. And this is this is the this is the irony of it all. Uh, and without again, I don't want to be too market technical because that just shows off acronyms, but doesn't help listeners. It's it's very interesting when you have a money printer which the Fed has, the Federal Reserve, which is very debatable. There's a great book called The Creature from Jekyll Island, which I think everyone should read. And another book called Three Days at Camp David. If you really want to understand how the Fed works, the Fed is in the back pocket of Wall Street. The Fed is designed. It was created by bankers in a, in a way that if you look at how the Fed was created, it almost reads like a Tom Clancy novel. It's so cloak and dagger. It's a very, very dangerous, but very, very powerful um, office. And the Fed has the power to create money and price money. That's extremely powerful. And if the Fed has these kind of powers, it can create literally trillions of dollars in a year to do what it likes or what the Treasury or the White House thinks it likes. But the Fed basically puts that money back into the markets. If you had a money printer, and today it's not literally a money printer, they just mouse click zeros on the balance sheet of the Fed to buy otherwise unloved treasury bonds or mortgage-backed securities or all the other hot potato toxic waste from 2008 that nobody else would buy. It's the place to print money to buy unloved securities to keep a market that's really on its knees looking healthy. But if, if think about it. if every family had a money printer and they had a mortgage to pay or tuition to pay or a new car to buy, well, it'd be very tempting to just go downstairs, print the money and pay the bill. Of course, that's fraud and that's counterfeit. And that would be something that would be a criminal offense. But at the central bank level, that's business as usual. And so, believe it or not, the Fed has this power to print unlimited amount of money. And technically, uh, if a market if, if you know, since February of last year, 56% of every U.S. Treasury bond, which is Uncle Sam's IOU, was bought by the Fed. 
So if the Fed can print money to buy Uncle Sam's debt to keep interest rates low and even make direct purchases of ETFs or securities, theoretically, the Fed could keep a recession from ever happening. Now, normal, normal capitalism requires constructive destruction and a recession and market cycles need to go down. And I do believe this market will burst under its own weight at some point. But the sad fact is, technically, the Fed could print enough money to keep this market um, sustained for years or it could end next week. The question is, or the problem is, when you print trillions of dollars, I mean, the Fed balance sheet pre-2008 was less than a trillion. Now it's over eight trillion. That's like adding buckets and buckets of water to a glass of wine. You, you kill the flavor of the wine. When you print trillions and trillions of dollars, directly and indirectly, you debase or dilute the value of your currency and, or your dollar or the dollar in your checking account or the dollar in your wallet and so, or the dollar in your salary. So there is an there is an inflationary effect or a currency debasement effect that 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 always follows this type of desperate money creation, and 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 for years that inflation hasn't been um, first of all it hasn't been reported accurately by the CPI index which is everyone on Wall Street knows is an open joke um, how we measure inflation, but now inflation is is clearly happening and and Powell is pretending it's temporary and I've argued and written ad nauseum how that's simply frankly a lie. And I know that's a powerful thing to say, but Powell's literally being dishonest and he knows it. We all know it. But the the measure of inflation, the honest scale to measure inflation, if we were to use the Chapwood index, which is the scale that was used in the 1970s before we got creative with our math and creative with our CPI or inflation scale, puts inflation closer to 12 percent today. And that that it's not the reported 2% annualized or, you know, break even rate. It's not the 5% increase year over year, but it's significantly higher. And why inflation isn't just a boring topic or an academic topic is it's ultimately a tax on the on the poor. Because if if inflation's 15% or higher and climbing, that means your dollar's worth 15% less this year than it was last year, which means regardless of how you measure your wealth, it's 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 being diluted. And I think you know, you can keep these bubbles going much longer than their natural expiration date. And this bull run we've had since 2009 is frankly for the record books because it's not based on free cash flow or good balance sheets or financial statements or dividend yields. It's based on, and every bear bull knows this, is a direct correlation between what the Fed does in printing money and supporting or accommodating the markets and how markets respond. And so it really is a rig game. It's an insider game. I write chapters about how that's true and not just dramatic. Any, anyone who's being honest, who's, who's bet on both sides of a sell side test knows this. Anyone who follows the Fed and follows the markets knows this. But there is a cost to it. You can keep the markets going and take capital gains taxes from those markets to get some income for Uncle Sam. But you won't get that for free. Nothing's for free. If it sounds too good to be true, it is all this money printing to keep risk asset bubbles and real estate bubbles going has a cost and that cost is inflation and the debasement of the dollar in your wallet and so that will become more and more clear over the next few years uh the fed again tries to call inflation transitory the fed also told us in 2009 that qe or money printing would only be temporary and that was you know over 10 years ago Nixon told us when we decoupled from the gold standard in 1971 that that would be temporary. That was 50 years ago. So whether you're talking about Nixon or Kissinger or Powell or, or Bernanke, the, the list is long and distinguished of just flat out duplicity. And, and again, that may sound conspiratorial or dramatic. Sadly, it's not. And I think for people who take the time to really inform themselves 
of course, I probably have a bias. I'm a little cynical. But if you're really being legally honest about this, objectively honest, um, the numbers you're getting on inflation and the numbers in the stock market are completely distorted. And we don't have natural supply and demand forces. So we don't have free market price discovery. We have a very, very powerful Fed whose role in our lives and in our markets is getting more and more centralized every day. I think it's a very dangerous pattern. Mm. So, Matt, you know, I wanted to ask you, so, you know, in the face of all this, the fact that the currency is being debased and the money printing and all of this, is there anything that people can do that are listening right now that are maybe hearing this for the first time to weather this storm, maybe even to benefit from it? Um, Is there anything that people can do? You know, it's 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 the trillion dollar question, and of course, everyone's saying, you know, look, the markets are ripping. The Fed has our back. These are these are times you don't want to miss. You know, if everyone's crossing the street at the same time, how can we get hit? There's a fear of missing out. There's a psychological need to not miss out on these these tech stocks, these growth stocks, this central bank tailwind. And I'm not saying everyone should go hide in the corner, hug their knees, pull their money out of the markets, and hide. But I think they have to be very very careful. There's the old adage that everyone knows is you buy low and sell high but markets are it the bubble we're seeing today in stocks in particular is 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 infinitely higher than the bubble we saw pre-08 or during the dot-com bubble so if you're in this market or you're entering this market hoping to get rich quick please know that you're entering not at the top but you're entering at a top and if the Fed loses credibility or if there is a black swan event or if interest rates spike and I can talk about things they can look at, please know that you're not guaranteed instant wealth or even safe wealth. You are entering or you are in a market that is topping. The sad thing is because the Fed has completely distorted natural market cycles or natural indicators like debt to GDP but or, or basically in a, in a, in a book, price, price to earnings multiples on a stock market or other things that we look at uh, – Cuban ratios, I mean, Tobin ratios, excuse me, book book value, free cash flow, all of those things that I 20 years ago would look at to value a stock just don't matter when there's just a momentum driven by a Fed tailwind. I would be very, I would be very wary of assuming that the next 10 years will be, are going to be like the last 10 years. No one can time a top. We're definitely at a top. It can get much higher. So to answer your question, I think if, if, if folks are going to be in these markets, they need to go into it with their eyes wide open and be realistic about what they can expect. Again, you can't just be doom and gloom and hide, but you also can't rely on old measures of value. And you can't just think the Fed will always be there to have your back. And so the key to this market phenomena, the key to this debt-based uh, bubble, which is all it really is, it's free money from the Fed or low interest rate money. Right now, as long as the Fed can print money to buy treasuries to keep yields and interest rates down, this bubble can continue. What I would warn, what I would warn your listeners now, without spending hours talking about different things and different indicators, the most simple indicator is, is the cost of debt. If this is a debt-driven, money-printed bubble, then it will be a debt-driven, money-collapsing crash. And so the way to look at when debt becomes unsustainable is when the cost of that debt becomes too high. And the indicator for the cost of debt in simple terms is the yield. I know this sounds boring. It's the yield on the 10-year treasury. If you see interest rates go up and you see the yield on the 10-year treasury spike above 3 or 4% instead of 1.3 or 2% where the Fed has been able to for years, frankly, or keep it at zero um, or below. But we really, when you, when you measure against inflation, we have negative rates. But if you see 
the yield on the 10-year treasury spiking or getting higher and higher, if you see interest rates getting higher and higher, that would be a sign that the debt party that has sustained this market is getting weaker and weaker, and I would get more and more defensive. Obviously, another thing, when you're talking about currency risk, when you're talking about trillions of dollars in monetary policy or fiscal policy going into the system, you are going to see inflation rising. And classic hedges against inflation include real estate, which not everyone can afford. Another classic hedge, of course, is that barbaric dead relic gold, which I'm a huge proponent of. And I know you've had Lynette, Lynette Zhang on. She's clearly in favor of gold and silver. Of course, I am too. And then there's your crypto, your crypto advocates. And again, we could spend hours talking about Bitcoin versus precious metals, but Bitcoin is a speculative asset, but they claim to be a store of value or an alternative currency. I respect the argument behind crypto because it's a middle finger to debased currencies and, and really mismanaged Fed policy. I think cryptos will have uh, days of extreme rising and extreme pain. Uh, but I think the real hedge is, A, look at the interest rate in the 10-year treasury. When it starts to spike, get real nervous about your stock market portfolio. I would look at some form of precious metals, physical, not paper ETF, uh, gold or silver. But again, recognizing that not everyone can afford to buy gold and silver and put it in a fancy vault in Switzerland. I have to be very sensitive to that. Uh, you can buy coins, but the premiums are high. But I think be defensive. Go to cash as interest rates go up. If you can afford to buy some physical precious metals, do so. If you have the stomach for the volatility in crypto, that's a, a decision you have to make for yourself. I've seen bubbles before. I think Bitcoin is a bubble. That doesn't mean it can't go much higher. There are many people I respect who think crypto is the future. I'm not here to denigrate it. Um, but for me, the safest bet is to go more and more to cash as interest rates go higher. But as inflation rises, you need to protect that money somehow. And, and I still believe physical gold is, is the best hedge against that. Or of course, real estate. And there's, But not everyone can buy farmland or real estate at these prices. So for many people, it's getting harder and harder to answer your question, Drew, to have a simple solution. But watch the cost of debt because debt is what drives this market bubble. It's what drives our quote unquote economy. It's what keeps people in the White House. They just keep spending more than they have, issuing IOUs from Uncle Sam in the form of treasuries, which the Fed then buys. And I'll just close by saying you mentioned my book, but yeah, it's a bestseller. But what if what if my rich uncle in Texas bought every copy of my book? I'm technically a bestseller, but I'm really lying to you because I had somebody store all those books in a garage. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what our market is in our economy. We've had the Fed buying the debt of our country, buying the bonds of our country, supporting the markets of our country. So on the surface, it's a best-selling economy or a best-selling market. But if you look under the hood, it's just a rich uncle in the garage buying all of our stuff. And that rich uncle in this market is Uncle Fed. And the beneficiaries are the nephews and nieces on Wall Street. It just is that rigged. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> That's a great example. But I will tell you, uh, Matt's book is fantastic. So if you want to... Um to even get more from you know and expanded on this uh, this conversation we're having, you got to you do have to check out Rig to Fail, um, but you know to to sort of take this in a different direction, Matt. You know when I was researching you, I, I found out all these really interesting uh, the, these interesting facts about you, and and one of them is that you met your wife on a beach in the Caribbean and married <laughs> a week later which yeah. I know is taking things in a little bit direction, different direction. And you also wrote another book called What Matters. And I was really intrigued by the title. For, and first of all, Matt, what was the inspiration for that book? And, and when did you write that? 
Yeah, I wrote that book when I was in um, in my late 20s. And the inspiration for that book was a professor I had. I had two great professors. Um, one was Cornell West, who wrote a book called Race Matters. Brilliant, brilliant professor, um, kind of from the mean streets of Sacramento, got educated at Princeton, came and taught at Harvard. He filled the, he filled the auditoriums at Harvard and um, just a contagious passion for books. Just, you know, he could talk about, Wittgenstein, Royce, William James, uh, Camus, uh, the great philosophers, Hume. He could just go on and on as if someone was talking about the, ins- you know, the, the Red Sox infield. You know, <laughs> he was just so contagious and passionate and informed. And, and I had another great professor uh, named Ralph Potter who listened and read and studied the French moralists like Montaigne and La Rochefoucauld and Chamfort, but the classics. And I just drank it up. And so what I received from that, which doesn't require an expensive education, what I received, though, was a great reading list and a couple great mentors. And so I was reading so many great books and I started to see patterns, whether you're reading the classics and the old kind of Greeks or reading the modern novelists or German theologians or French philosophers. I had such a great exposure to great books that I I noticed that they were all talking about the same themes. And and, I, and rather than, than think of my own ideas of dealing with, say, friendship or marriage or death or suffering or individuality or sex or um, uh, adversity, all these themes that are in all these books for centuries, you can kind of collect them and get different views and you can help shape your own thinking with the, with the guideposts of some of the greatest minds. So I wrote What Matters in my late 20s because I had two young kids, which are the light of my life. Uh, and it's just the greatest inspiration. I wanted to give them a, a roadmap that I didn't have growing up. And so I thought, what better muse than my kids? And so I took all these books that folks like Cornell West or Ralph Potter or other great professors that I was blessed to have had given me. And I, and I just organized the thoughts. And I thought, wow, this is a great little handbook or a little book, as Montaigne said, for the art of conducting a life. And God knows anyone who knows me, I'm not a good example of the, the art of conducting a life. We all have our ups and downs. But I thought we could all use some some guideposts or some guides from some of the great minds and myself included. I love reading the book because it reminds me of things I've forgotten. So it's definitely not Matt Pippenberg telling you how to live. It's just Matt Pippenberg organizing some really good minds broken down into some really interesting themes. Mm-hmm. And it's been helpful to me. I hope it's been helpful to my kids. And um uh, but it was really, it was really, uh, you know, just an inspiration from the idea that really books do matter, ideas do matter, and great minds can help us. Um, I think anyone can see that who takes the time. I think what's sad today, we live in a, in a different type of attention span, a different type of set of distractions. We kind of have a Twitter word count for how we get our information. A lot of a lot of debates today, with they're not censored, are usually more emotional than they are informed. And I think it's important for anyone, whatever their opinion on any topic, is to try and be as informed as they can. And when it comes to your own questions in life, we all struggle with them. It helps to have Tolstoy or Dostoevsky or Hemingway or Emily Bron- or the Bronte sisters or, or you know, La Rochefoucauld or David Hume or William James who struggled with the same things or Nietzsche, Feuerbach and Schopenhauer. I mean, there's, it's not to swat off what you know and drop academic names. It's actually to get insights from these people because they really can pull you out of a dark, dark place or even help you through a wonderful place. It's, it, it's like creating your own friends in these books and these great mentors. And so 
long answer to your question, I think books matter and books, good books with good minds who've struggled with some timeless ideas can help any of us. And I think they're yeah. worth, uh, worth considering. Do you, so, so Matt, do you know if your kids have read the book that you read? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure my daughter has, she's more serious. My son's had too much fun. I think, um, <laughs> I remember when I was publishing this book, somebody came in and had breakfast. And so your kids must be totally brilliant, totally safe now. I said, well, no, we all go through, myself included, you, everyone, my kids who I think are extraordinary. And I, again, I, I don't want to brag about my kids, but yeah, I'm sure they've read it. But um, more importantly, they have to live their own lives too. I would never suggest that any theory or book or idea is a substitute for your own successes and failures. I mean, we learn a lot from our failures and our mistakes. I think one of the things that's important in this book that again, I didn't invent, it was, you know, guys like uh, Viktor Frankl or, or, you know, even Albert Einstein or Primo Levi or other writers who've been through suffering that you have to be responsible for your own life. At the end of the day, the secret to your life is being responsible. And one of those responsibilities is being accountable for your own mistakes. We learn a lot from our mistakes and our screw ups and our, whether they're intentional or unintentional. And I want my kids, I told them, you know, go out and live, do what you have to do extreme or unextreme, but be accountable when you learn something. Um, there's a great line from a French author, Saint-Exupéry, who wrote some great books, but the little prince is famous. But one of the lines he said is if I have a son, I'd put him in the desert and make sure the wells are spread very far apart because part of part of being human is to challenge yourself, to suffer, to be scared, to be afraid, but not to hide from those feelings or those emotions and to go through them. And you had a great guest. Um, I was listening to Xavier Dagba, uh, the, the mm -hmm. individual. He had, a, he had a great, great comment about depression or anxiety or fear it really comes, you know, it's really, it's, it's, it's a pain to avoid a deeper pain that, you know, people are ignoring their feelings or ignoring their failures or ignoring their mistakes. And, and that's actually, it's like being mentally constipated. You have to dig deeper. You have to look deep into those things. And when you do, you get through them. So the book is just some ideas for the answer to your question. I want my kids and anyone else, myself included, to experience life too. That's just as important, if not more important. Mm, that's beautiful. Matt, what are some of the daily practices that you have, rituals, practices that, that really make you feel most alive and present mm. in, the, in the now, in the moment? Uh, great question, Drew. I mean, one of the things I got from my father is just an attitude adjustment. It's, my dad's been, he's been through a lot. He's had polio as a kid. He's had leukemia. He's struggling with cancer. I've watched him go from the acme of height to, um, to just real, real scary, uh, moments. I've watched my wife go through health issues. Um, I've watched friends kind of struggle through all kinds of sturm and drong. And, and when I was watching each of these people go through these challenges, they kept really positive attitudes. My dad said, you have to have an attitude of gratitude. It sounds like a cliche, but I've, I'm, I've always been impressed by his ability to keep what he calls a sunny disposition, even in the height of absurdity when you're in, you know, when you're being radiated or chemoed and you're weak and you're tired. He still found ways to be grateful for what he had in his life and what he still had to look forward to despite some real challenges. I try real hard never to think like a victim, never to be a victim, and to look at every opportunity, even the most absurd, as a chance to recycle that into something good. And that may sound Pollyannish, but again, if you read individuals like Viktor Frankl or Primo Levi, who were literally in the death camps during the Holocaust, who were able to turn that experience, which none of us would want to relive, 
but we're able to turn even that type of experience into something um, useful to them and how they loved people later, how they appreciated their freedom later, how they appreciated even the smallest gesture at Auschwitz to kind of stay sane. Again, that's an extreme example. But I think if you can look for gratitude, look for signs of kindness, even when there seems to be little around you, it's important to try not to get cynical or dark, even though I see a lot of cynicism and darkness in the world today, in some cases more than I'd like to see, there's always something um, we can gain um, from the smallest gesture or even, you know, I spent a lot of time with horses and my dog and my kids are grown up, but we love just the little signs of joy we get from the simplest things in, in the yard with the animals or with friends. And so, yeah, I think the, the answer is be grateful. Don't be a victim. Don't blame the world. Uh, don't even blame yourself. Um, it's hard. Again, sounds false when people are struggling with rent, mortgages, stress, relationship, heartache, pain, uh, rejection, all the things that we all go through. It's a relief at some point to finally just be grateful that you can take a deep breath, uh, sit down with your dog in the yard, jump on a horse, go for a ride, go for a ride, grab a coffee, whatever that is and whatever zip code you're in, you can find real moments of peace and a chance every now and then to say thank you to whatever whatever spiritual thing you believe, whether it's conventional or unconventional. Uh, I think you really have to include a a piece of gratitude in your in your thinking and avoid feeling sorry for yourself. But the other thing I think is something Cornell West said to me in, in, in school is, you know, the real problem in the world is spiritual malnourishment, not material success or material failure. And again, may sound simple, but and that's not about spirituality necessarily at a church or a synagogue or a mosque. That can be whatever you create, whatever power you want to believe in or whatever attitude you want to believe in. I think if it's a loving one or a compassionate one, whether that comes from religious denomination or not is irrelevant. If, if you can keep, keep that attitude somehow, despite all the, the pouring down of negativity that comes at us from Facebook to the Wall Street Journal, you know, that's a great accomplishment. And, you know, one of my favorite politicians was John Kennedy. And, and in Washington, D.C., at, the, at, the, at, the, at one of the walls there that honors the Kennedy Center, there's a great quote there that a country cannot afford to be material rich yet spiritually poor. And I think in the American dreams search for material wealth, if you get that at the expense of internal or invisible wealth, you'll be the poorer for it. And as someone who's benefited from material wealth in the last years from Wall Street, I can say this without being condescending, that there's nothing money has bought me that was ever an equal to the memories I have with the, the few people that really matter to me. It's the ultimate wealth, it's family, it's friends, it's your, it's your, it's your attitude. And again, sounds like a Crimea River story from a hedge fund guy, but it's absolutely, absolutely true. And it doesn't mean we should lose ambition or lose our interest in buying that dream home or that dream car, those are great things, but that new car smell eventually goes away. No matter how big the house is, it's still just a house. If you don't have those connections with people and with yourself, uh, I think that's really sad. I think we should all make an effort to make that our real goal. Mm, that's that's beautiful. Well, you hit about three of my questions in that one <laughs> response. That was great. But, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you, you know, you live in one of the beautiful parts of the world. Uh, I was telling you, I took my son to France a few years ago, um, and I know you live in the countryside. Um, Matt, just talk about the role and the importance of nature in your life. Yeah, it's it's again. I I have friends that are diehard city folks who the, they're like the 
the Woody Allens of Paris or New York or LA, they'll never leave. And maybe Woody Allen isn't a good example these days, but, um, you know, I, I do understand people who love the intoxication and the stimulus and the community of cities. And, and believe me, I, I need a jolt of it myself, but maybe it's my astrological sign. Maybe it's just the nature of the way I was raised, but there is absolutely no doubt that f since I can remember, I've always chosen places where I can be free of noise and free of distraction and put my bare feet in the grass because I think it's another part of my my day as much as I can when I'm not in the office or in, in, in a city to do work is to give myself that wide open space just to let to let myself be free of the other stresses of normal life and whether that's a mountain range an ocean setting forest a, a field or a park, I think it's important for us to to get that moment with ourselves free of a lot of the distraction or a lot of the stimulus that comes from more urban settings. And again, not to say that you can't find this. I spent years in New York City and Central Park was always there. I had some of my most, best moments right there in Central Park. You can find this, but I absolutely think it's no coincidence that that recharge you get from just a little silence or a little beauty uh, that doesn't exist necessarily in concrete um, is is really important. I think most people kind of know that intuitively themselves. Mm. Well, my last question, Matt, and you kind of hit it on one of your your prior responses, but I'll throw it out there anyone anyways, I asked this question to everybody. If you had the opportunity to travel back in time, say thirty years or or so, what words of wisdom would your current self share with your younger self? I, I love that question. It was funny. Years ago, um, someone who I miss had sent me um, or had, had gotten me a gift of my high school graduation video. And uh, it was um, interesting. I'm, you know, I'm 51 now. I think I was, what, 18, 17. I was watching my 18-year-old self go up there and get his diploma. And it looked like I was literally watching somebody else, the person I was then. And the person I am now. And I wanted to take him by the shoulders and warn him of all the stupid things he was about to do in the next 30 <laughs> years. And, uh, I think what I would like, I, I think what I would like to tell myself 30 years ago is get over yourself a little bit. I think, I think, um, it's normal when you're 18 or, you know, you, you have, you have, um, this desire to fit in and to live the American dream, the French dream, the Dutch dream, the Swedish dream, you fill in the blank. There's this notion of what it means to be successful, what it means to be respected. Um, this goes really back to the question of individuality, which when you're 18, it's very hard to be an individual. It's very hard to be your own self when you're going through puberty, adolescence, and trying to fit in. But that's something I see happening to people in their 60s, 40s, 30s, and 50s. There's a great quote by E.E. E. Cummings that the hardest thing to do is to be yourself in a world trying to make you somebody else. And, you know, I know you had Hugh Hendry. He's a character on the other day. He was talking about Camus. And Camus isn't one of my favorite authors because he was very nihilistic, but I think he was brilliant nevertheless. And, you know, Camus was a, uh, he said the most serious problem facing the world today when he before he died, at least, was conformity. I think that the 18 year, 20 year old self 30 years ago was someone like so much of us that wants to conform, that wants to fit in. And I think, you know, and this is another great quote by LaRoche Foucault, when you start disguising yourself from others to fit in, you disguise yourself from yourself. I think the key point I'm trying to make is 
it's really, really hard to determine what you really are, who you really are, what really is your passion. Most of us don't grow up wanting or, you know, we don't come out of the womb wanting to be hedge fund managers or, or bond brokers or um, Wall Street raiders. I think we want respect and income. And I think the, the, the Faustian deal made with trying to get respect by your income or your career, if it's at the expense of your soul or your passion, if you'd rather be surfing or doing river rafting or raising horses in Wyoming or making baskets in Panama, it's not for me to decide what that is. There is more to life than just conformity or being quote unquote successful. I think it's very important for the 18 year old self to ask themselves, who are they really? And again, that's a question I wish I'd asked more than I love my life. I love my career. I love what life has given me, but I think I have to try all the time, even you know, like like Hugh is doing surfing in St. Bart's, not walking through London worrying about his balance sheet. I think there comes a point you can make that decision earlier or you can make it later, but you have to make it. What really what really do you enjoy? What really defines you? What really matters to you? That's super subjective, super personal, but please don't ignore that just because you're trying to fit in. Matt, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you, Drew. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for listening to The Drew Perlman Show. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. In the words of Mark Twain, 20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than the things you did do. So throw off the bow lines, sail away from the safe harbor, and catch the trade winds in your sails. Explore, dream, discover, and stay well, everyone.